Hey, this is Jeremy Roenick, and guess what? You guys are listening to The Jim Bob Show. People in Chicago were mad at me for leaving and going to the Packers, and people in Wisconsin were wondering, what the hell do they do hiring the broadcasters? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Having the Bears broadcasters do the Packers. Hey, this is Wayne Larrabee, and you're listening to Roar on WGN. It is the one and only Ron Jaworski. Jim Bob, it's Ron Jaworski. I, I know. I'm in, I'm in awe. I know. But oh, awesome. come on. You guys are awesome, man. Keep up the great work. Hey, this is Brian Urlacher, and you're listening to The Jim Bob Show. That's awesome. Oh, that's then, it. How about one? This is Brian Urlacher. I'm not a bitch. <laughs> no. <laughs> that's about that one, Seven twenty WGN. It is the Jim Bob Show and the Roar Series here high atop Chicago in the Skyline Studio with Jim Bob Morris and Danon on the line is one of the iconic voices in sports broadcasting. You've heard him with the Kansas City Chiefs, called championships with the Chicago Bears, the Chicago Bulls, and the Green Bay Packer. The man with the dagger himself, Wayne Larravee. Welcome to the show. Good to be with you guys. Hey, Wayne, uh, we were talking, Dane and I were talking before we got on. I'm so glad to have you. As I was mentioning to Dane, look, Wayne Larvey is the iconic American sportscaster. He's called everything. And I, I said to Dane, I go, my first question is, you've called the Bears. You've called the Bulls. You've called the Big Ten. You've called the Packers. My question is, do you think you could call a pickleball match tomorrow? Because you've done about everything in the world. <laughs> no, it- Hockey and pickleball are where I draw the line. <laughs> you know, I'll make sure to tell Chelios, my business partner with El Bandito Yankee, that, hey, no, he's not doing any NHL stuff with you, Chris. <laughs> well, well, Wayne, when we were talking about it, we were thinking about that is like, how do you, when you get to be at that level where you're calling things on a regular basis, I said, Wayne's going to say preseason game, Super Bowl, you got to be up for it. You got to have it be interesting for the fans. But when it is those big moments, you know, that are going to be legendary and replayed forever. You know, what is that feeling? Do you get up in a different way for it you know there's obviously some nervous anticipation for a moment like that that you you pray that you uh, capture it you know verbally the way that it'll make it even more memorable than it is but that there's some pressure to that and that's that's not an easy thing to do but the best way to do it is just to kind of let it flow whatever comes into your mind that's what the call is going to be. As it evolves, I was curious as to, you know, you've called Super Bowls for the Bears, for the Packers. Is that how much studying do you do before a big game? Or does it change? Does the Super Bowl call change in regards to your preparation? You know, you're a mass communications degree graduate. So, I mean, you know, this is going out to just a ton of people. Is there more preparation for a big game versus the regular season? You know, uh, I'd like to say yes, and I there probably is, but I, to me, I approach it the same way. I watch the same amount of tape. I'll uh, go through things, you know, um, the way I normally would prepare. You try to be maybe a little more thorough when you get into a Super Bowl or playoff game, you know, that kind of thing. But, but really, um, no, I, I the preparation not greatly different from a regular season game because I only know one way to do it. And then that's to, to prepare as thoroughly as I can. I don't know that people recognize this, but 
when you're a sportscaster at your level, you're watching as much film as we did as players. I mean, I remember, you know, how much film study we put in, and this was the old days. You know, I'm talking about the mid-80s to the 90s, but today technology changed. It's a lot easier to take that stuff home with you. I mean, when I started yep. my career, we were using Super 8. I mean, so, yeah. I, mean I was actually whining to myself. But, but anyhow, but you're watching as much film as, as the players do. You know, you really are. And my approach is, and I, I do this, I've talked to uh, coaches and players about this. I mean, how much film do you watch? How far back do you go? And, and we generally go back three games, if you can. And I generally spend, you know, I'll watch all three games and then look at the last game two or three times to be familiar with what's happening with that opponent right away. But, you know, you bring back great memories. I remember going into Kansas City and they would give me on Saturday afternoon a projector and the film to watch uh, of an upcoming opponent. And it was pretty crude. It was black and white. I could hardly see the numbers. And, the end but, zone. You, know, you had the end zone film, too. It was all end zone. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. End zone. And it was really, it was cut up, but it was just uh, hard to see. And But, you know, that was that was real film. Then we, we turned to video, and then we turned to uh, VHS, and now we're into something totally different and uh you know, so it's it's changed greatly, but it's changed uh, from a preparations party to the better. You know, when you were when you were at Emerson and in Boston, and I I was doing a little research about you and your preparation back in the Emerson days, and you'd be up there in the old Boston Garden, and and everybody was amazed at your preparation back then. Did you ever have any vision of being that Lee Massachusetts boy and and being in the Boston Garden? Which, by the way, if anybody's never been to the old Boston Garden, boy, did they miss out? But but I mean, yeah. the fact of it is, is that those days and where you are today, did you visualize where you would be today from back then? You know, I did. I tried to. And when I was, you know, doing those things in college, I was trying to immerse myself in what it would be like to do that. You know what I mean? So now, obviously, I didn't know if I'd get the breaks and that type of thing. But I was trying to, you know, play sportscaster and immerse myself in it in that regard. And that's part of what that was all about, going to the garden every night and uh, broadcasting into my tape recorder a Celtics game. It was it was fun to do. I enjoyed the preparation and the process and, and everything else, and uh, it, it led to some good things. You mentioned something about the spontaneity of the moment and just kind of letting it carry you and have that come out of the broadcast, but you mentioned trying to plan for things, catchphrases, right, whether it's Harry Carey with Holy Cow, you know, and some of the other ones, you know, John Madden, you know, with Boom and all that, with the dagger. Like, how did that start? Did you sit, did you draw that up? Jim Bob had suggested maybe trademarking, if you haven't done it already, but talk a little <laughs> bit about that because that's as big a star as some of the plays on the field. Well, you know, it's funny how that came about. Um, I never used it in Kansas City or in Chicago, but we used to use it in the NBA. You know, uh, the Bulls would be in a close ball game, and, and Jordan would come down and, and hit a, a three-point shot that would make it a two-possession game. There were a few seconds left, and you knew the other team wasn't going to get enough touches to to beat that score, and so there was the dagger. And so I was doing a Bulls game one Saturday night in Chicago, and the next day the Packers are playing the Baltimore Ravens in Green Bay. And so what I did, it just must have been in the back of my mind. And it was a back-and-forth game. And then uh, Brett Favre hit uh, Bubba Franks with a touchdown pass and put the Packers up in the fourth quarter by three scores. And I said, and there's your decker. And it went from there. <laughs> you know, And when I don't say it, 
people are wondering, well, where was it? What what play was it? Yeah. You know, that kind of thing. I was telling Dane, you know, my association with you goes back to, like I said, you arrived in Kansas City in, in 1978, and I was entering college at Kansas State, so I listened to you from then, and then you go to Chicago, and, and after I got released, I'm living in Chicago, and then you're in Green Bay, and our corporations have got suites in every town that you've been in. I feel like we're following your career sometimes, but <laughs> <laughs> it's like one of the the trademark moments of the dagger though i was giving dane some static about it i go i go yeah we gotta bring it up i gotta bring it up today because sometimes we all make mistakes we're getting into that flow and we go oh that's the dagger and the seattle seahawks game back in 2012 yeah. i remember it like it was yesterday because i can tell you we tore up some furniture that day but uh, tell us about that one well that was uh, that was a monday night game uh the uh, regular officials were on strike and, you know, the Packers played really poorly in the first half. And, and then Stormback took the lead in the second half and seemed to have the game well in hand. And Russell Wilson, I believe, was a rookie. It's 2012, if I'm not mistaken. Russell Wilson's a rookie. He brings the Seahawks back and throws a pass to Golden Tate, I want to say, in the corner of the end zone. And Golden Tate flat out pushed off. his offensive pass interference to begin with. Then there's an interception. He takes the ball away. The officials the replacement officials make it a egregious ruling of uh, touchdown and new york they, they send it back to new york to get it reviewed and new york decides we turn this over <laughs> we're gonna have a riot in seattle so they let it stand but the next day the nfl because that game was that was so egregious the nfl made a deal with the union the officials union and they were back the next week so that game played a huge role in getting that negotiation done once and for all you talk about some of those memories and some of that history all the way back to Jan Stenner to now talk about that for the career. Is this the best time with the best players, at least at the quarterback position for fans and you to be watching these games? It very well may be at the quarterback position. You know, it's bigger, faster, stronger. I don't think that makes it a better game, but I do think that it, it makes for the, you know, some extremely great skilled position players out there. And so, you know, when you look at it that way, I guess the game is better, but I don't know if the game is really better than it was 40 years ago, you know, and I, I just don't. You know, I don't believe it is. You know, that's a great segue there, Wayne, is we've got Terry Bradshaw coming on the show later on this month. And Bradshaw is one of the guys, when we talk about era football, you know, and you go back to Terry's career in the 70s and 80s, and I, and I tell everybody, I go, well, I can tell you, I agree with you. I don't know that being stronger, bigger, faster makes the game any more exciting or any better. But I would say that this, I think Terry Bradshaw, from a quarterback perspective, could play in today's game. I don't know that a lot of other players, Lynn Swan seems like he could play, Stallworth, those guys. But, I mean, you go back in those, look at those 1970s, and you go, hey, which one of these guys could have played? Was there anybody in the 60s era that could have could have played? You know, and you, you, think, yeah. you go back and think about that. Is that. But, you know, we talk about these quarterbacks and, and where we're at today. Yeah, I want to come back to the era question, but in, in regards to these quarterbacks, do you think – Aaron Rodgers, two MVPs in a row. Two in a row has been done before. I don't know if three in a row has been done. Did Peyton Manning win three in a row? I, I don't think so, but he won. Uh, I think he's won five. No, I, I just think that, you know, when you look at what Aaron's done and, and the way he approaches the game and the way quarterbacks approach the game today, I'll tell you what, you know, it's been special to watch him play and to call every one of his snaps in Green Bay. But I got to tell you, I was so impressed with Tom Brady, 45 years old, 
with a bunch of third and fourth string receivers out there. That guy is something else, and he could play in any era. Yeah. But one thing I would say about the quarterbacks in the 60s and the 70s and 80s, the thing to remember is they would be approaching the game differently. They would be training differently. So, you know, those great players back then, I think, could play today. It's just they, their whole approach would be much different. So many people experience the game through the voice of Wayne Larravee. And before we let you go, we definitely want to talk about, as people are going to be making their way up to Lambeau Field, I think, regardless, even if you're a football fan or even if you're not a Packer fan, Lambeau Field is one of those bucket list destinations. I don't care who you are. You need to make your way there. Talk about that. It's sort of a game day experience. Yeah, it's kind of like uh, Fenway Park, Wrigley Field, that kind of bucket list type place. You know, you just think about the history there. You think about Lombardi, you think about the Ice Bowl, you think about all the great games that were played there and the great players who played there. It's kind of like when you go to the L.A. Coliseum, and I remember the Rams were waiting for their new stadium to be built, and the Packers played the Rams a few years ago in the L.A. Coliseum. And I remember going down and standing in the tunnel, and I just could picture all the great USC teams that played there and, and uh, the first Super Bowl teams that played there and, and how what a great place that is. The same thing with Lambeau Field. There's a lot of that history tradition. You can feel it, and it's palpable. And uh, in that regard, I think that's what it's all about. And it's a special place. It's, there's nothing quite like it in the NFL. It's, people say it's plopped down in the middle of a neighborhood. No, the neighborhood grew up around Lambeau Field over the last 70 years. But it's a great experience. When, when I was there in uh, 87, 88, is that I tell people, we have a suite there now, and, and uh, we used to have 50-yard line seat tickets. It was easier for me to get a suite at Lambeau than get two more 50-yard line tickets. That's the that's the fever of the fans. But all that area there now as you're coming into Lambeau is all those houses. I could have bought those back when I was playing for 50000 $60,000. Now they're all going for a million dollars. I mean, it is so, but, but I, I, I want to talk about, you know, your career, you know, you get started on the major level. You were at Iowa and, and so but you get into the Chiefs in 78, and then you go to the Bears, and then you go to the Packers in 98. And, and so, you know, you spent all that time, 14, 15 years in Chicago, and then you go to Green Bay. What was it like being a beloved voice for the Bears and then going to the Packers? How was that first game with the Packers versus the Bears, and what were your sentiments back then? <laughs> That's an interesting story because it was a very emotional week for all of us. That was the week Walter Payton passed away, and uh, they had a memorial service down at Soldier Field on the Saturday before the Bears and Packers played in Lambeau the next day. So uh, anyway, this is the old press box of Lambeau Field, and the, the home and visiting booths were right next to one another. And so it's 1999. I'm in my first year with the Packers. It was a back-and-forth game, and you know, I'd been a part of the uh, Packers-Bears rivalry, but uh, the teams I had broadcast for had lost like nine in a row. The Bears had lost like nine straight to the Packers. So here we are doing this game, and uh, the game finishes. The Bears come out with a win on a field goal of some sort. And anyway, my statistician from my years with the Bears hands me a note saying, you're now oh, of your last 10 in the Bears-Packers rivalry. So, <laughs> but no, that had to be an emotional day for it you, was though. Funny. It was funny. It was, you know, and for many respects, it was emotional. But, you know, and it was a weird time because, thank God, we don't have social media the way we have it today back then. But I, I can tell you this, people in Chicago were mad at me for leaving and going to the Packers, and people in, in Wisconsin 
were wondering what the hell do they do hiring the Packers broadcasters? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Having the Bears broadcasters do the Packers. That well, was uh, <laughs> that, that had to be so. Hey, I, I'll tell you, I really appreciate you coming on here. I, I watched I watched some YouTube stuff on you and the first time sports caster deal you did with Charlie Barron's the Manitomoc Minute. That was funny as heck. Is it? We want to get you back and do some more stuff with you. I appreciate your take on the game. Love your voice. Love love everything that you do for the games. And you're like I said, you are one of the most diverse people in the sportscaster arena and I'm looking forward to when you're going to call the game between me and Dane on our pickleball match. <laughs> wait, 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 I, I got to tell you too is that you are and you're one of those people that can transcend that great divide between Packer fans, Bear fans, Chicago, Wisconsin, Green Bay. You're beloved by both sides of the border so we can't thank you enough for being on the show today. Yeah, thank you very Guys, much. you're very kind. It was wonderful to visit with you. All the best and uh, tell Nick Lowry I said hi. <laughs>